The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Hello, you are listening to the China Sports Insider Podcast. My name is Haig Balian, and I am with Mark Dreyer. He is the author of Sporting Superpower, an insider's view on China's quest to be the best. First of all, Mark, how are you doing? <laughs> I am very well. I love the intro. You're just always building me up like that. I'm, thank you. Thank well, you. No, well, just facts. <laughs> just facts. Um, another fact. Today, we're going to talk to Cameron Wilson. He is the editor of Wild East Football. Well, he was the editor of Wild East Football. And it's a really good time to talk to him right now because he's in Shanghai, which means he's in lockdown. I think most people here in China have not been following the World Cup qualification. China has just completely shit the bed. Uh, and Are you just trying to work in the fact that Canada's qualified? Wait, did Canada qualify for the World <laughs> Cup? That was for the first time in 36 so years? 30, 36 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there we go. Yeah, it, was, it's, yeah. it was amazing. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I, you know, I did get up at three o'clock in the morning to watch that, and uh, it would have been really annoying if they'd lost. But no, it was, it was, it was amazing. I actually remember Mexico 86. That was my first Panini sticker book that I completed. Yeah. Um, and the Canadian team were in there. Yeah, 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 that's right. I saw that on Twitter. That was yeah. really cool. Hungarian team, massive beards. That's uh, that's most of what I remember about that book. But uh, it was fun. Before we get to Karen, and we're going to tee that up in a, in a bit, uh, in F1, Joe Guan Yu is not in action for another couple of weeks, but he did race last weekend in Saudi Arabia. What happened, Mark? So it was a really tough race for him because he finished in 11th position. Um, he actually had the worst possible start and fell right back to the bottom uh, at the first corner to, to, to the bottom of the, of the field, 18th. And then he came back. He had a five-second penalty uh, because he had uh, taken a place by cutting a corner uh, and he didn't give the place back, which is what you have to do. And then when he came in for his pit stop, the team tried to add on the extra five seconds. They messed it up. So basically, he went went out too early, and so he then got another penalty. It was entirely his team's fault. It's a drive-through penalty, which costs you maybe about 15 or 20 seconds. So he was cost basically 10th place, which actually went to Lewis Hamilton, of all people. Um, so he would. He should have got his second consecutive points finish, which 
as uh, you know, first two races in in uh, F1 again, tenth place and eleventh place. I think that's he's overperformed expectations. But uh, again, a lot of people watching that here in China, a lot of people posting about it, staying up late. It was uh, one o'clock, one a.m. start time here. Yeah, you um, you stayed up to watch the two. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, to, uh, Australia in two weeks' time, and uh, hopefully he can get in the points again. And hopefully there won't be any missile attacks oh, in Australia. Yeah. yeah, that was nuts. Yeah, like nine miles away, and there's this big smoking on that oh don't worry we're only targeting a uh, commercial infrastructure no danger of anything else like in what other sports do you have an actual missile attack nine miles away from a stadium and it's not called off <laughs> yeah you know the, I, saw, I saw the images and it's like wow this is really really scary and it made me wonder what is the most harrowing experience that you have gone through um there's there's a couple of things that spring to mind these are probably a little bit trite in comparison to like a missile attack but there was there was one particular plane ride coming into China. It was it was clear air, um, you know, clear air turbulence they call it, and we were about thirty minutes outside of Beijing, and we just hit a pocket of something and dropped. And I was sitting right in the back row, and I saw half the cabin hit the roof. Like nothing was like like people have all their shit strewn everywhere. A lot of people flew up out of their seats. I heard, you know, I saw all this stuff literally fly up, and then there was just screams and for. Probably half a second, but it felt like about six or seven seconds. It felt like we were in free fall. There was one, there was another time, what is it about public transport? But, but this was this was on the, the, the tube, the London Underground. And I was in one of those stations, which was really, really deep. You have those very long escalators down underground. The carriage had, uh, uh, the, the subway car had, had come in. There was some smoke and it, it was probably like some extra heavy braking. But there was some smoke, you know, smoke smell, and they, there was an announcement to evacuate. And people were walking very, very fast up the escalator. Mm-hmm. Walking, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. very, very fast. Mm-hmm. And it was at that moment I thought, if if some if one person starts running here, we could have a stampede because yeah. we were like freaking out. We were like buried underground and potentially a fire, and it just felt tense. No one did. But I was like, this, this. You hear it like, how do people die in stampedes? And for the first time, I was like. This is how. Yeah, yeah. That's how it happens. It's amazing. What about you? Uh, well, a couple of years ago, I was filming in Lebanon in 2019. Okay. And uh, I, I, when I landed in Lebanon, I had no idea there was a revolution happening. It had happened overnight <laughs> as I was on the, uh, on the plane. And so uh, we cut our trip short by a few days. Now, we were there for about 10 days. On the last day, the tension was just palpable. Like the prime minister had just... Uh, resigned, and you know the the, direct, the director and I decided to get to the airport as soon as possible. Yeah, just whatever I think, happens. I, I think I would have stayed at the airport on landing and got the next <laughs> way out. It was it was very challenging. So so we decided to get to the airport. Um, it was about twelve hours before our flight, and we got into our Uber, and the driver was like, "Don't worry, I am the best driver in Lebanon," which was exactly what we needed. Okay, so we were driving to the airport, and. What you needed to hear or what you actually needed a good driver? I would both. Both. <laughs> both. I needed both. And then he said, okay, to the left and to the right, there is two opposing factions. This is the one place where we don't want to be stuck. As soon as he said that, oh, a man. flaming garbage can rolls in front of our car and then about half a dozen men with machine guns, they come right in front of us. And the driver was like, don't worry. And he turned into the wrong way, you know, on a one-way street. Yeah. Went around all of it, and then sort of we got to the other side, and then you know we got to the airport. 
waited about, I mean, we couldn't check in for the longest time. And then when we did check in, I just made a beeline to the lounge and probably knocked back. <laughs> Half the bar. Probably. There was, there was, there was, I don't think there was much Jemisons left after that. Um, so that wow, was yeah. Okay. Only... All right. That, that trumps both my stories. <laughs> no, Man with the machine gun. So the, the yeah. driver was just totally calm. He was, yeah, we were all calm. Like, I mean, there was no choice. Like, there was just, you just couldn't, you, yeah. I mean, I think just everything happened so quickly. You didn't wow. even have a chance to get, you know, uh, to to uh, worry. Oof. But, man, like, yeah, that was that was wild. Um, well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> seamless. Another of your seamless segues. Well, uh, so let's talk to Cameron. Yeah, so so Cameron, we talked to him a bit earlier. Really int- intense, interesting uh, conversation. When did you first meet Cameron? You know what? The first time, uh, it was actually over the phone. Uh, years and years and years ago, I had a, a weekly column for the Global Times, which back then was, uh, well, it was still the Global Times, I'll be honest. Uh, not probably my the proudest thing on my resume, but, you know, I could basically write about whatever I wanted. And the sports editor was very happy to, never got, edit, you know, censored or anything. like. Uh, and it, back then, sports was just sports, right? And so... Um, but it was still the Global Times, and I, and I, I was doing something on football, and I, and I knew Cammy, you know, from from the internet basically. And I called him up, I got his got his contact detail, and I said, you know, can, can I ask you a few questions? And he go, what's this? What's this for? He's a bit gruff, you know, Scottish gruff Cammy. Uh, he's a good friend, I can say that now. Um, he's like, what's this for? Oh, oh, that rag, that nationalist rag. Yeah, I don't want to do this. And so I basically had to twist his arm to mm. give me a couple of quotes for the piece that I was writing for my column. Um, and then we met up and, you know, that was a long time ago and we've been kind of good friends ever since. But yeah, that was yeah. the first time I ever got in contact with him, basically having to persuade him to uh, to, to give me a couple of quotes. He started something called Wild East Football, which I, I don't think exists anymore. It's basically been over the past decade or so the English language site on Chinese football, which is, you know, it sounds pretty niche, but it's it's been a really good site for analysis he's pulled in a lot of other writers and 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 some you know another co-founder as well so it's been a great source of of news for Chinese football and there's you know there's a WeChat group associated with it and they've had a podcast and stuff over the years it's basically lapsed in recent years I think largely just because <sighs> Cami and I've spoken to him about this and, and you know he just gets tired of saying the same things over and over again and, and it's depressing he doesn't basically want to sort of keep shitting all over Chinese football for the nth time because he's a he's a fan of Chinese football he doesn't want to be that guy but it's like what else can you say you can't just spin stuff into positives when there really aren't so it's 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 been a struggle yeah so we caught up with him uh at his home in Shanghai which as the world knows uh is in lockdown at the moment so uh that's where we found him here he is Cameron Wilson in Shanghai Cammy, great to have you on. We were going to talk about football, of course, but um, there seems to be something else going on in Shanghai at the moment. <laughs> what the hell is going on with this lockdown? I don't know what's going on in Shanghai. I've been stuck in my house for 11 days. <laughs> now, we, we were chatting over the weekend and you said that uh, you'd been locked up for eight, nine days and then the whole district, you're in Pudong, right? The whole district was then yep. going into lockdown from 5 a.m. the following morning. But the previous evening, everyone was let out for a set number of hours, right? Yeah, it was a bit strange. We'd been, at that point, we'd been locked in for, I think, eight days. And they announced that they were going to split Shanghai in half, basically seal off Pudong from Pusi, which is East Shanghai from West Shanghai. Um, at that point, not only our compound, but our entire sub-district had been locked down for eight days. So they realized that 
they had to let people out to get food. So because they announced this late on Sunday night, it was basically the streets were full of people carrying shopping bags and basically as much as they could carry from supermarkets. So it was a bit, it was just really bizarre. So what is the deal with food? Like I saw another video of someone on the other side of town and, and he's at a supermarket. This is just a, a, a few minutes before he came on air here. Um, and he says there's an hour long line at this supermarket. Um, like, can you get stuff ordered in or, or literally you have to stock up? And that's why people were out on the streets on, on the weekend. Could, uh, we could get stuff ordered in until about maybe until that day. They, well, it's complicated because there was a positive case in my compound. So that's why we've been locked down before they locked down all of Pudong. Uh, and before the positive case was confirmed, uh, we were able to order Waimai and, um, or, or get delivery online from supermarkets. But now that's been stopped because there's a massive wire fence being bolted into the ground in front of my compound entrance. So there's nothing coming in anytime soon. Can we give us a sense, like, like you know, from your perspective... What is the mood? Like, are people confused? Are they frustrated? Are they, you know, accepting of like, well, this is what we need to do to 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 keep COVID zero? Like, like, what are people talking about? Whether in your compound or just just from the conversations that you're still able to have with with messaging and so on with with friends in Shanghai. I think I think it's interesting to contrast it with two years ago. But two years ago, nobody was vaccinated, and the the virus was an unknown. And by all accounts, it was potentially life-threatening for, for anybody, potentially. So people were uh, a lot more willing to just, you know, take these extreme measures because they were seen as necessary. But this time it's a lot different because, you know, we're two years down the line. big majority of people in China have been vaccinated. And there's also an expectation that Shanghai is like, you know, China's biggest city and it's seen as the most international and the most organised and well-run uh, so it's come as a bit of a shock to suddenly to not only go back two years, but it's actually worse than two years ago. Two years ago, the lockdown didn't mean you couldn't go out. It just meant that people voluntarily voluntarily stayed in because they were genuinely afraid of catching the disease. But but now we can't even go out. Um, we tested every day. Generally, when I talk to people, I think people are getting a bit fed up, and I think people are starting to realise that zero COVID is is great in principle, but in theory, it's looking like it's practically impossible um, when Omicron comes into the picture. I'll just ask you one more before we move on to the <laughs> the proper topic of conversation, football. Um, you know, <laughs> right. I've had so many questions, I'm sure you have over the last two years, you know, from people overseas, friends and, and, and colleagues and, and, and so on, saying, you know, can China's numbers be trusted? And basically, we spend our lives saying, well, you know what, it feels like the numbers are very, very low, and it feels legit. Like anecdotally, you don't know anyone who's had the who's had the virus, um, and you know there's there's this narrative in the West that all China's numbers can't be believed. But but it did feel to to, to people over here that you speak to that generally the case numbers were um, were correct. They they were low, but but with with reason. Do you think that's still the case? You know, the reason I ask that is because I saw I saw a stat from Shanghai a couple of days ago, and it was seven confirmed cases. And about 4,000 asymptomatic cases. It just sort of seems absolutely staggering. Like, obviously, we don't know what the situation is, but do, do people, are people beginning to question what the hell's going on? They're like, how is the information flow? I think in general, there's a, the, the skepticism of Chinese figures is always, in my opinion, well-placed. But as you said, as people who've lived in China for the last couple of years, 
even in the beginning when the virus was running rampant, the figures didn't seem out of keeping with what you could see with your own eyes and what you could perceive and what, what, what other reports you were hearing from your friends or people online or whatever. In Shanghai, though, when this latest wave broke out, I mean, I knew I was personally connected to at least three cases. And in a city of 25 million, I mean, I tweeted this. I said, you'll just do the maths. I mean, that's, it can't be a coincidence that I know of people who are infected or people who are locked down because they had a, a case in their compound. I think the grounds for scepticism this time around are a bit higher than they ever have been since the, since the virus broke out. Yeah. yeah, let's let's move on. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I guess the thing is, like, we just we just don't know. I mean, we just don't know. It's, yeah, I agree. it's amazing we, that we, we don't know. We just don't know. Um, don't. And you know, we can we can speculate, and we can yeah. you know, yeah. But I mean, just, I mean, you, I mean, just yeah, just just think of a quick anecdote. Was um, there was rumors before Shanghai locked down Pudong. There was rumors that the whole city was going to be locked down, and there was this police notice. Um, given warning people not to spread rumours and saying they were investigating two people for spreading rumours. Then, lo and behold, a few days later, they basically locked Shanghai down, but they used this really kind of absurd technicality where they locked down one half of the city than the other to get around saying that we're locking down all of Shanghai. So I think that I've seen that particular point made on WeChat by so many Chinese friends saying, well, you said this was a rumour. You warned people not to spread rumours, but then that rumour turned out to be, to all intents and purposes, true. So I think the scepticism is increasing. So, Cami, back to or on to football. Um, you've been in China, Shanghai, give or take 20 years, right? Yes, yeah, coming up 17. All right, last night, uh, China lost 2-0 in a dead rubber, 2-0 in a dead rubber in their last qualification game for the World Cup. They, it was a, it was a, it was a debacle from the beginning. They, they just they just had no hope. In your opinion, is this a low point for Chinese football? Uh, not really, because China's had so many low points that it gets a bit academic. My mother-in-law's just came in with Chinese opera. Yeah. The perils of lockdown <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> Uh, start, uh, maybe you want to include that. It's quite quite a colourful anecdote. But anyway, um, where were we? China's had so many low points that to pick out one particular game is actually, I don't know, it's like an academic exercise. Uh, last night's result, as you said, is a dead rubber. I don't think it really matters. Um, but, of course, it's not a very confidence-inspiring result because Vietnam is... Vietnam are underrated. But they are the kind of team you'd expect China to beat. So, Cami, one World Cup cycle ago, um, China finished fifth in the group. Um, basically, it was, the, it was the same qualifiers from, from the AFC, from the Asian Football Confederation. China's in exactly the same situation, way away from qualification. You know, one World Cup cycle later, it feels like absolutely zero progress has been made. Is that a fair assessment? Like, like what, what happened, what's happened to this whole you know, long-term plan, the 50-point football, you know, uh, point to, to revolutionise football. Why is progress not being made? The progress hasn't been made because everything in China is top-down. Um, the focus is always on the international team and their achievements. Uh, that might seem that might seem reasonable at first glance, but it kind of belies a simplistic look at the problems facing the game and what's actually wrong. 
the 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 real problem in China is 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 like a super micro thing. It's like the grassroots system, even below grassroots. When I say below grassroots, I mean the things which exist in society to encourage people to start to take up football at grassroots level. Even these things don't exist. So by that I mean culture, a level of penetration of the sport into the fabric of society. It doesn't exist. And then going further into that, what are the things stopping these things from happening is that my take is that the pressure on ordinary Chinese families in everyday life is so great that leisure time is at a premium. It's, uh, so basically kids have free time, but this free time is spent on academic pursuits, doing extra homework or doing extra classes and so on and so forth. So football is seen as a frivolity basically, I think, by many Chinese families. Cammy, you founded a number of years ago the, the Wild East Football site, and unfortunately now I sort of have to talk about it in the past tense because you, you've, you've basically retired it. And from, from conversations we've had in the past, you know, I, I know that from what you've said to me, you just you didn't want to continue to be negative about Chinese football because there was nothing really much positive to say and it was just like depressing for everyone and particularly for yourself to continue to say the same things again and again. But, you know, I'm going to turn that around. You have found, you know, what are the positives? You Why are you hopeful that Chinese football may, or Chinese culture, Chinese football culture may develop and some of the subculture elements that, that we've talked about in the past? You know, just share a perspective on on why you think there is hope for wider football culture in China? I think despite everything, I think that, again, you need to look at it from a big picture, right? If you look at China now, especially more than ever, what, what does China crave? It, it craves some kind of recognition on the world stage. And I think football offers offers a path to that in a way which no other sport does, because simply because it's the biggest, most popular sport there's always football has always inspired a subsection of Chinese society. So if if you think of football as I mentioned earlier, like football is not part of the, the fabric of society in China. It's a subculture, but within that subculture, there is some really passionate and really amazing fans, like people who put up with the most ridiculous things in their clubs or the most underachieving football national football team despite all the negativity, despite the lack of achievement, these people, the fans, are just as good as fans anywhere. And if, if not better, because there's so many barriers they have to, to cross. China's a very conformist society, right? The, the, the dominant narrative about Chinese football is that it sucks. And Chinese people don't like, Chinese people don't like Chinese football. And Chinese football is like the laughing, it's like the laughing stock, stock of the nation. And to, that may be pessimistic, but to a large extent, that's kind of true. So if you are a Chinese football fan in a very conformist society like China, you need to be willing to have the level of individuality and the level of passion to to get past this kind of social convention which says the football's crap and it's not worth following. So when you get deep inside the game and you, you get in touch with, you get in contact with actual people who actually do follow it, these people are very, very... Uh, very devoted um, in terms of their time and their money and their emotions. Uh, it's really inspiring to have spent so long, um, so many years alongside these people. And that's what gives me hope that maybe one day they can turn it around. 
and that's absolutely true. And well, I'm Canadian, and this past week we just saw mm. this team that people, you know, people in Canada just had written off many years ago. You know, this had never seen success, hadn't been to the World Cup in 36 years, with one really great head coach and a few fantastic players just turned everybody's perceptions around and um, now Canada is a footballing country and that you know that could happen in China right hi where's, where's the head coach well, from? As- <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> he is English he is English he's an honorary Canadian now <laughs> you're tough but- to bring England, England into it somehow Mark yeah. <laughs> I, I think uh, actually Haig I think that uh, there's a lot of parallels between Chinese football Canadian football because Canada, like China, is not traditionally a football country. So the barriers uh, and the route to achieve, uh, to, to establish and build a successful national team are, are going to be broadly similar. Um, if you look at Canadian participation in Major League Soccer, Toronto, is, um, Vancouver, and uh, uh, Montreal Impact, I'm not sure, I'm pretty, I think there's a strong argument to be made that the entrance of these professional teams is up to, up the game in Canada. And it gives people uh, something to aim for. Um, if you and if you look at Japan, Japan founded the J League in I think ninety three, and since ever since ninety eight, Japan's been a regular qualifier. Uh, you could say something similar about the US, although last time they didn't qualify qualify for World Cup. But the point is that since they established a very well-run, professional, and successful domestic league, it's, it's uh, led to success with the national team. I think the same's happened with Canada, same's happened with Japan, and the same happened with Korea as well. They started the, the K League, I think, in the early eighties, and they've been at every World Cup since nineteen eighty-six. So, what's the problem in China? If you compare China with Canada, the States, South Korea, Japan, problem is they don't have a well-run, successful league which is run in the interest of football. The big problem with the Chinese domestic league is it's just dominated by political decisions, which are not in the interest of football development. You know, it's interesting as well because uh, the MLS absolutely had a massive impact on on Canadian interest. You know, you, as you said, it's something for for a lot of young people to aim for. Uh, a couple of years ago, they also started the Canadian Premier League, which is a much smaller league. Uh, doesn't pay nearly as much, but again, it's a route to that one, you know, yeah. prof- a pr- profession. The way that they sort of have conceived of it is. Um, they're they're totally realistic. What they want is for larger leagues to poach their players. They they want that to happen. But I guess the point is they have football in mind, right? This is this is about developing developing players and uh, creating excitement. Yeah, I mean I, there is an important point to make. I'm trying to make it really briefly, just in a simple way. Let's we talked about uh, countries like Canada and States, which aren't traditionally football countries. But if we look at traditional football countries, let's just look at, say, the UK, for example. The biggest difference in terms of the structure of the game is having an extremely well-developed pyramid system where basically every town and city has a football team, which, if it's not professional, it will be semi-professional. The ultimate point is that every almost the, the number of cities which have a football team which is well enough run and big enough to offer someone a, a, a career which they can make a living from. The number of clubs in the UK which can provide that is huge. Um, but in China, I mean, you've basically got you've got three tiers, but it's only the Chinese Super League which has any teams which 
are financially able to offer players a an attractive living. Uh, and even out of the, the CSL, it's barely into double figures the number of teams which actually have either A, strong enough finances to provide that, or B, offers some kind of fan base which gives a kind of adulation and some kind of glory to players for, for representing this club. Cammy, the, the, the thing I think that I found most frustrating on this particular point, you talk about the pyramid, but it's the seamless connection between the different tiers. Like if you fall out of professional football here, where'd you go? You don't go anywhere. You like Jamie Vardy is is a sort of a much cited ex- example of someone who falls down the pyramid, basically into semi-pro, almost amateur level, and then can bounce back up. There's this this net to catch you. I remember being on a panel about ten years ago, actually, and there was a guy from the English FA who made this exact point. He said, you know, this this all the levels down, you can fall down, you can find your level, and then build it back up. And you know, this is not it's not rocket science, and it's not news to China. Like. They've asked this question time and time again. They've been given the answers. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people involved in football. The footballing people here get it and they want to change, but they just haven't been re- really been able to because, as you said, the political decisions. But uh, it's makes you tear your hair out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, but you're right. It's, it's, it's simple. It's simple. Why is, you say if in China you get relegated or you you're not able, as a professional, you're not able to play at the top level anymore. Where do you go? It's bec- Why are there not more teams? It's because there's not a widespread football culture. Uh, people in China will basically only go and watch a f- football team if they're successful or, you know, they've got uh, good players or whatever. You know, the, the, the threshold is much higher to get people out to watch a game. Whereas in the UK, you know, the, you go to a game where there's like a, a, a town with a population of... Like my hometown team, Duffermon, population Duffermon is 60,000 people. But you go to a Duffermon game, there's, what, three, 4,000, 5,000 people more for a big game. So for a big game, there could be more than 10% of the population of, this, of the city or the town at the game. I mean, if you, you compare it to China, well, I mean, 60,000 is like, it's like a few streets in Pudong. Yeah. But there's only like one, there's only two professional teams in Shanghai. So you see the coverage isn't there because there's not that pervasiveness of football culture throughout society to support even small teams which don't are never going to win anything but people just like to watch football and that's the other thing in China I always find it comes down to is it seems in China people don't really do something just for the love of it it's, there's always got to be some some point to it like the bottom line is uh, don't don't play football you won't be able to earn enough money uh, to support your parents when they get older or, or don't spend your time kicking a ball about. You should be doing more time and homework. There's not. It's just not space for for that kind of um, leisure and uh, passion to develop for for football or, or 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 anything else for that matter, which isn't related to the bottom line. Before we were online, you were t- you you mentioned that uh, you were just on a podcast with the Economist. Now, uh, was that about? Yeah. It was, was was that football related? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, so uh, when you talk to people who are outside of China, what what is it that they're curious about? What do they want to know from you? There's not any one thing. I think w- what I find the narrative when I talk to people outside of China about Chinese football is kind of, I spend most of my time trying to explain to people how how different things are in terms of how it works. To cut a long story short, Chinese football is not about football. And I spend a lot of my time explaining to people why that is. That was cut very short. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, what is well, what is the, yeah. what is their response to that? It, the, there's there's two basic responses. People who are Westerners, but they are not followers of football, or they're from typically from a country which isn't a football country like the states. I'm generalizing, but generally they actually understand Chinese football a bit quicker. I feel because they don't have uh, preconceived ideas of what football is like. Whereas if you talk to Europeans, they do. And there's a lot of things you have to dispel. Things like, even things like, a simple example, like a lot of time in the CSL, players are picked, not because they're the best player for that position, but because of their connections or because of their seniority in the club. And just getting European fans to get their head around that is, is, is quite difficult. That's an example of players who get a game not because of the football ability. What would happen, for example, if a coach went to a team and said, well, I'm sorry, like, I know you're, you, you've been here for five years or six years, and this, this, but this young player is, is, you know, faster, more skilled, and we want to play this player instead. Like, what, what would conceivably happen in, in, in that squad? It basically depends upon, it's about power networks and the player's closeness to the decision maker in the club. The decision maker in the club is typically like the chairman or the uh, operations manager, uh, the general manager. For so, for example, Shanghai Shenhua's case is uh, Zhou Jun. He is um, a notorious individual who very clearly signs and hires players based on his connections and based on personal benefit he can accrue from such transactions. Um, I've watched this team for fifteen years, and I can say without any shadow of a doubt, there's a very clear pattern of players who are signed and they weren't, did not match the football requirements of the club at that time. Uh, but as as to what goes on exactly inside the club, how that plays out, I'm not entirely sure. I have been told by more than one person who, professionals who've worked in Chinese football, foreign professionals, that when they try to deselect these people, there starts to be all kinds of excuses and manoeuvres made like, oh, you've got to play this guy because... The other guys who you want to pick is um, he's upset because his dog died or some pathetic excuse like that. Which is interesting because sport really is the the world's best like meritocracy, or it should be, right? I mean, it's it's really we can right. we can argue all we want before a season about oh my team is great or my team is not great or whatever. It doesn't matter what we think at the end of the season. There's a result. Well, I mean, you can see you can see evidence of this phenomenon even in the policy making of the game. So a few years back, they introduced a policy where you had to start a certain number of young players. Um, but based on the abilities of some young players, it is clear that these young players were were good enough to get a game, but they weren't because they were they weren't getting a game because presumably they did not have enough seniority and connections. And I can, I mean, I've seen, in my opinion, at Shenhua, I've seen I've met at least at least half a dozen young players that they, they start, suddenly start playing. I'm like. Where did this guy come from? Why, why were we not playing him like three years ago? Wow! It, it, it manifests itself in in all levels and all corners of Chinese football. Carrie, there was a time about ten years ago when there were a bunch of penalties handed out, punishments uh, for match fixing. Now, this was to players, to coaches, to officials, referees, but they were dating back several years previous to that. So we're going back to a time, you know, fifteen, twenty years ago. Where would you say match fixing is today? Like, has it been eradicated from Chinese football? I know there was a story that perhaps you could share from from not too long ago, where where there was a, you know one of the players was was complaining about something going on. 
Is it something that's still an issue for Chinese football today? I don't think match fiction is a serious problem in the top league anymore. But there's some extremely suspicious betting patterns um, associated with games in the lower levels. I can't think of any specific examples off the top of my head, but it's stuff which just looks... It looks so wrong, and there's supposed to be systems in place to flag these things, but they don't seem to work. And who's making the money? Is it is it Chinese betting syndicates as go further afield? I think it's uh, external. It's people outside of China who who have the means to put big bets on on betting websites with bookmakers. Um, but I mean, I could I can give you an example. I could tell you, tell you an anecdote. This is like a, as far as I'm concerned, it's a true story. I think it was the last game of 2013. As Shanghai Xinhua played the uh, Guangzhou Fuli, Guangzhou Guangzhou RNF. I saw that I've seen this game. Shenhua lost four two, but there was like one penalty given away, which looks like a ridiculously reckless tackle to concede a penalty. But we can talk about penalties, and you can argue over argue over these refereeing decisions till the cows come home. But what made this game different was that at the end of the game, the goalkeeper at that time, Shenhua, was a uh, Wang Dalai. Who he's since moved to Shandong and he's one of the Chinese national team keepers. But after the game, he gave a pitch side interview where he complained bitterly about match fixing. He said, The fans aren't stupid, they can see it. Some teammates are extremely irresponsible. Then this game triggered a suspicious betting alarm in Italy. I learned through the grapevine that the two players involved in match fiction had not been paid for four months. This is how they justified it, apparently, to some fan club leaders who'd, who'd spoken to them about it. I can't name names, but I knew, knew people inside the club who basically said, yeah, it, it was a fixed game. But the thing is that the, one of the players involved, not only did he return to Xinhua after, after this incident, he left the club. And then when the goalkeeper, Wang Dali, he left Xinhua about a month after this game. Then this player came back to Xinhua. He was signed back. And then... Not only was his match fiction ignored, he was honoured with a hundredth appearance. On his hundredth appearance, a few years later, he was honoured on the pitch by the chairman who presented him with a jersey with his name on the back and the, and the number 100. That was a moment for me where I've never felt more disgusted in my life as a football fan to witness that moment. And I, I almost walked away from Chinese football completely then, but in the end, I decided against it. I mean, how, how sensitive a topic is this within Chinese football? This was a game you're talking about nine years ago. Have you ever have you ever talking about spoken about this publicly before? Not, uh, not really. Um, I mean, I've mentioned stuff in, in chat groups about it, but I never wrote about it on Wembley's football. We accused the player of being a match fixer, um, but that was. I mean, when you're when you're writing online, I mean. Listen, you, even though it's a blog and... I mean, I'm a journalist by training, so I like to think I at least have some commitment to trying to maintain a balanced or factual as possible. So at the end of the day, a lot of the evidence was circumstantial, so I didn't really want to say all that much. But that just adds to the frustration. It's like you know these things, and you have extremely convincing reasons to believe that to be the case, but... What can you do? It's frustrating. And um, there's other such stories about 
It's China. China is an information poor environment. It's vague. It's everything. All explanations are tend to be incomplete and pose obvious questions. Um, but in general, Chinese people are really comfortable with ambiguity and they're masters at ignoring the elephant in the room. So if you're a foreigner, you come in, you see all these things which look totally contradictory and ridiculous, but Chinese people are so used to it, they're not, they're, they don't even notice it. <laughs> and they're, not even, they're certainly not going to help you understand what's really going on. Cammy, there's been a few times where some of the pieces that you've written have been translated uh, uh, into Chinese and, and gone sort of semi-viral on the Chinese internet. Um, I think, you know, you've perhaps been able to say a little bit more as a foreigner than perhaps a local journalist or local fan um, has been either able to say or comfortable saying. Um, just tell us a little bit about that. And, and you know, why do you, th- why do you think some of the pieces that you've written have resonated with Chinese football fans and the, and the, the sporting public? I think there's two elements to it. One is that I said made I made criticisms, constructive criticisms, which I think the Chinese media either can't do or they don't feel comfortable doing. If you say something which they agree with, but they can't say themselves, they will be likely to quote you. The second aspect is that to be a foreigner and to criticise anything about China is exceedingly difficult, especially now more than ever. But I do think that my many years have been seen as a dedicated fan and a supporter of Chinese football has given me a little bit of license to to be the outsider who, who criticises, um, which I think is is good and I, and I appreciate that, but it's not something I take for granted. I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, Cameron, thanks so much for talking to us. That was I really enjoyed that. I learned a lot. Next time you come on, hopefully there will be some great things to talk about in terms of what's happening here and, and, and with, with, with football. No, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I'd, I'd love to come on again. Um, I've been listening to the pod uh, during the Olympics. It was, uh, it was, um, you had a pretty, um, pretty tricky tightrope to walk in terms of certain topics. <laughs> no, it was really fun. Well, uh, I hope you get through the next uh, twenty-four hours and the the, the post hot pot recovery. It's going to be more than twenty-four hours, both the <laughs> hot pot recovery and the lockdown. <laughs> when when do you get out? How many days until uh, you're free? You I don't, don't know. know. We don't know. Right. That's that's the annoying thing about it. It's really uncertain. I we the consensus is at least another ten days. So that I've been in eleven days now. So wow. Yeah. Well, it's um, wow. That is rough. It's getting it's getting a little bit getting a little bit touchy here. I've been, I've been making notes about which neighbours have cats and dogs just in case the worst happens and we can't get any food in. <laughs> well, <so>. No. <laughs> just kidding. That would be that would be the next next hot pot. Okay. Cats. All right. All right. Well, good good luck, Cameron. Talk, talk to you soon. All right, guys. That was Cameron Wilson. He is in Shanghai. Let's leave it there, Mark. Where can people find you? Uh, Twitter is probably the best. Uh, Dryer China, D R E Y E R China. And you can find me on Twitter too, Hike Valley and H A I G B A L I A N. Don't forget to rate or review the podcast. It helps a lot. We will see you next week.